welcome to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. This is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. We just want to invite you to join us as we study God's story revealed through the Bible and seek to apply His truth to our modern life. Our hope is that through these teachings, you would experience life with Jesus as you experience life with us. I am biased against Bible apps, but that's all right. We all have our thing. If you could open up to John chapter 13, starting in verse 31 through 38. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time together, and then we will jump into God's word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, come together. We thank you for this opportunity to celebrate you and your resurrection and the fact that, that because you are alive, it means you can still be at work in and through us today. So Lord, we, we thank you for the good things uh, that you are doing among this community, among this family, and we pray that you'd continue to empower us as we go forward. Lord, we also pray that you would meet us here Uh, as we open up your word, as we enter into your story, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say and eyes to see you for who you truly are. Lord, I I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We say, speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I came across this meme Hopefully we, we have it that we can throw it up. Uh, I don't remember where I saw it. I don't remember where it's from. I cannot cite this source. But I thought this was like one of the best Bible memes that I've ever seen. It's, it's Peter and Judas. And Judas is like, hey, Pete, we still on for Thursday? And Peter says, Thursday? Yeah, man, the Last Supper. Don't you remember? And Peter says, the Last Supper? Uh, just supper. I mean, I mean just, just ordinary supper with the guys. Says Judas, I think this meme is hilarious. I was searching for this meme this week and I saw some people on social media who did not share that opinion. Maybe you're one of those. Maybe you don't share my opinion. That's fine. But I thought it was it was a funny, a funny thing. But it also struck me differently this time as I was searching for it. I was like, actually, maybe not like the actual dialogue, but there's some historical accuracy here. This meme is depicting Judas as knowing before they go to dinner that night exactly what's going to go down. Judas is the only one besides Jesus who knows that this meal, this night, is going to be the last that Jesus shares with his friends before his arrest and his execution. Judas went to dinner that night knowing exactly what he was going to do, having a, a plan of betrayal perfectly mapped out, tucked away in the darkness of his own heart. He was ready to execute the plan that he had made. Last week, we read that Judas had it in his heart to betray Jesus. That that takes a while for something to get into your heart. It has to start off in your mind and you mull it over and gradually, rather, it makes its way and finds its home in a heart. Even as, as Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, including Judas's feet, Judas had it in his heart to betray his teacher, his master. And, and if you remember, 
Last week we read that after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he told them, look, if if I do this, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also ought to wash one another's feet. He said, I have given you an example. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We stopped the conversation or paused the conversation right there. But this week as we open up, and I told you the wrong verses. We're in verses 18 to 30 this week. As we open up to uh, verse 18 in John chapter 13, we, we see that the conversation kept going. Look with me at verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Pause. So Jesus just said in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, but not all of you are going to be blessed. Right away, Jesus says, not, not everyone is falling under what I just said. See, he knows that not all of his disciples are exactly what they appear to be on the surface. So what does Jesus do? He, he continues, he says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, now this is really interesting. Anytime Jesus says a scripture is about to be fulfilled, we ought to sit up and pay a little closer attention to what's happening. He says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a, that's a strange saying. I don't know when the last time you said that someone lifted their heel against you. It doesn't really fall off the tongue. Like it doesn't make a ton of sense to us. In fact, uh, Bible nerds and scholars argue about what exactly this phrase, lifted his heel, means. It seems that it could mean a number of different things. Lifting a heel might be what you used to do as a kid when your brother was annoying you and you wanted to make him stop, so you, make your, you, you lift your heel so that he'll trip over your foot and cause him to fall. That, that, that might be what it means to lift your heel. Literally, the, the phrase means to make your heel great. To, to make your heel bigger. So maybe like sticking your foot out to trip somebody, that could be lifting your heel against someone. Or lifting your heel could be what a horse does when it's tired of listening to you and it, it wants you to back off so it lifts its heels and kicks back to get you away. Or lifting a heel could be like, like when, when someone uses someone else as a footstool, they, they lift their heel to step on them to get ahead. Or it could be that lifting a heel is simply what someone does when they turn their back on you. They, they lift their heel to walk away, to walk out the door. It's not exactly clear what it means, but the common denominator among all the possibilities is this idea of betrayal and mistreatment. Lifting a heel, whether it's in violence or in abandonment, is always a form of betrayal. So Jesus is saying here, look, I know that somebody around this table who's eating bread with me is going to betray me. But what's interesting is that he doesn't simply predict that someone's going to betray him. Actually, he says that it's happening so that scripture will be fulfilled. That's really significant because whenever Jesus says that something is happening so that scripture will be fulfilled, it means that there's at least two things that we should pay attention to. One is that whatever is fulfilling the scripture is in some way proving that Jesus is who he says he is, that proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
Jesus doesn't just say Scripture is fulfilled in anything. It's always things that point to his true identity as the God who left heaven and came to earth to live without sin and die for our sin, to save his people. So when Jesus says that the Scripture is being fulfilled, we should say, okay, so whatever's happening somehow proves that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. That's interesting. We'll tuck that away for a moment. The second thing that we should pay attention to is the fact that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here, which means that he's quoting one verse that has a whole context surrounding it. We also know that Jesus grew up in a time and a culture where scripture memorization was just not like a cute thing you did in Sunday school, like one verse at a time. It was like whole books at a time. Like it would not have been uncommon for Jesus to say one verse from some random place in the Hebrew scriptures and everybody standing around says, oh, I know what psalm that is. Oh, I know what chapter of Leviticus that is. And I can quote you the verse before it and the verse after it. Like it it was a whole thing. So when Jesus talks about a scripture being fulfilled and quotes one verse, it's helpful for us to ask the question, what's the context of that verse? Is there more than meets the eye that Jesus is, Jesus is saying when he quotes that, that particular verse. In this instance, when Jesus says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, he's quoting from Psalm 41. Psalm 41, specifically, he's quoting verse 9, which says, even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So it's not just that anybody who ate bread with Jesus lifted his heel. It's a, it's a close friend, a trusted confidant that's about to betray Jesus. This psalm, Psalm 41, was written by King David, most likely after a time in his life where he experienced a, a profound betrayal. Most Bible scholars think that this line in Psalm 41 is probably a reference to a guy named Ahithophel. Somebody say Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Y'all did really good. I thought that was going to scare you, but you were brave. I'm so proud of you. Ahithophel, like who, who is this guy? Maybe you haven't heard of him. If you want to read his whole story, it's only three chapters. It's uh, 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17. You can read all about Ahithophel. Basically, he was a counselor of some kind to King David, who then joined a rebellion against the king, which just so happened to be led by David's son, Absalom. Okay, there's a whole lot going on there. There's a whole lot to unpack, lots of family dynamics that we just don't have time to get into. But basically, Ahithophel was a a counselor to King David who lifted his heel and turned against him to join the rebellion. Uh, interestingly, a lot of Bible scholars think the reason why he did this was because Ahithophel was likely Bathsheba's grandfather. I don't think that's anywhere explicitly in the text of Scripture, but really smart Bible nerds have, have combed the pages and said, wait, hold on, this name matches this. Hold up, that could be a reason why he would rebel against King David. I don't know if you know the story of Bathsheba. Again, whole nother thing. Lots of dynamics going on there. We don't have time. But it kind of makes sense, like, oh, that, that would be the kind of thing that as a father or a grandfather might irk you a little bit if, if a king were to take advantage of someone in your care like that. Well, whatever the case, he sought to kill the king that he had once counted as a friend. He had shared table fellowship 
with the king, which was much more significant in this day and age than it is in our time. Table fellowship was, was almost sacred. To, to share a table with someone was to be counted as an equal. So to have shared table fellowship with the king was to be put up on a, on a very high pedestal. This was a trusted, trusted friend. To share a table was inherently an act of friendship, and yet this is the person who lifts his heel. The fact that he had been so close to the king only serves to heighten the severity of the betrayal, of the transgression, when he turns his back and lifts his heel. What I think is interesting is that Jesus is is quoting this psalm not only to say that he's about to to be betrayed, but also, I think, to, to invite us to draw a comparison between Ahithophel and Judas. Jesus and all his friends would have known the, the context of this psalm. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus was trying to drop a stronger hint than is obvious to us at first. In fact, I, may, I even wonder if maybe he was inviting Judas to see himself in the mirror of Ahithophel and to reconsider his ways. Here is a close confidant of the king who had been a friend, who had shared table fellowship with him, who turned against the king when rebellion arose. He became an advisor to the opposition, to the one seeking to kill the king. But ultimately, the story of Ahithophel goes that his advice backfires and directly results in the king's victory. And the friend-turned-rebel ends up taking his own life. Come on! That's Judas! This is precisely Judas's story. And I think that Jesus is dropping this strong hint not only to tell us what's about to happen, but to tell Judas, I know what you're doing. Jesus did not have to point this out to us. The scripture could have been fulfilled without Jesus quoting it, without Jesus saying a word, but instead he points it out. So it must have been intentional. It must have been for a reason. Thankfully, he tells us the reason if we're just willing to read the next verse. Verse 19, Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, before I am betrayed, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now check this out. Jesus is using the very moment of his betrayal not to rebuke his enemy, not to to give a stern warning to the others watching on. He uses the moment of his betrayal to comfort his friends. He says, hey, Something's about to happen, and I know it's going to be really hard for you to take. I know that once Judas leaves the room and once this ball gets rolling, it's going to be easier to believe that I was a fraud than that I am God. It's going to be easier to give it up and walk away than it is to endure and press on. It's going to be easier to to doubt than to believe. And I am telling you this now so that when it happens, you can still believe. Jesus is is not saying this and is going to excuse it away. He's saying, no, this is actually fulfilling scripture. The fact that he is about to be betrayed ought to serve to us as proof that he is the Messiah. 
not as a detracting factor in, in any kind of way. Jesus says, I want to let you know that this too is part of my plan. So he comforts his friends in the security of who he is. And then from this security, he he directs them outward. He says that if anyone receives you, they've received me, just as you received me and therefore received the Father. Basically, Jesus is, is rooting them in the security of his identity and saying, as you go forward on this mission that I'm about to give you, as you continue on in life as representatives of me, know that whoever receives you receives me. He's at the same time giving them comfort and security and propelling them out toward mission. What happens next? Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus takes the time to to clarify his previous statement, which he doesn't always do. Lots of times Jesus is perfectly content to leave things kind of cryptic and half explained. But this time he says, no, one of you will betray me. He, he explicitly predicts what's going to happen by one of these friends. Naturally, the, the disciples' response is to begin giving each other the side eye. Darting glances around the room. They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Do, do you see the expressions on their faces as their eyes dart back and forth. Could it be you, Thaddeus? Is it Matthew? Who? Matthew used to be a tax collector. I could see him turning. Who? Is he? Does someone think it's me? Do you feel the anxiety growing as their eyes dart back and forth? Finally, unable to take the suspense, Peter motions to John across the table to ask Jesus, Who was he talking about? Please let us know. So it says that John, who was apparently sitting closest to Jesus, leaned over. It says actually he he leaned against Jesus. He was close enough to, to lean his head on Jesus' shoulder and whisper his question in his ear, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered in verse 26, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Could Jesus not have answered John's question more simply? Could he have not just whispered back, It's Judas. Instead, Jesus takes some bread, dips it in wine and offers it to his betrayer. Remember, we we just said that the act of breaking bread, sharing table fellowship was inherently a sacred act of friendship and equality. Rather than calling out his betrayer for what he is, Jesus 
takes an opportunity to extend one more offer of friendship to Judas. It makes me stop and ask, how do I respond to betrayal? It makes me ask, how do I respond to things much less serious than betrayal? How do I respond to misunderstandings? How do I respond to disappointment or to feeling let down by somebody? Is it, is it with the humility to serve them and offer my friendship? On the good days. More often, though, I, I think I can tend to be much more bitter or self-righteous in response. Maybe I'm alone here. Mine usually doesn't come out vocally, but, but I have caught myself in times like this thinking, seriously, what did I do to deserve this? Can, can anyone else relate? Really? You're going to treat me like that after what I've done for you? Seriously. I can tend to, to make mental lists of reasons, or lists of all the reasons why I'm right and they're wrong, why, why I'm justified and they're guilty. But if I stop and think, I realize that I don't actually have any right to react that way. Right? I, I'm not perfect. Maybe someone else's betrayal or transgression or whatever it might be, sin against me, doesn't quite match whatever I've done to them, whatever ways I've failed them or fallen short. But at the end of the day, I can't say that I've ever done a relationship perfectly. It seems to me that, if we're honest, brokenness and disappointment in a relationship is always a two-way street. Even if I don't feel like I deserve to be treated like that... I can never be completely without fault. And yet here is the only one who could ever viably like, act like that. Who, who could ever be justified in saying, you know what, I've done nothing to you. I have been perfect. Here is Jesus, the one who lived perfectly without sin. And instead of using his sinlessness to shame Judas, he uses it to extend one more opportunity to repent. One more chance to to change his mind and to accept the friendship that Jesus is offering. And at the very same moment, as he offers him the bread, Jesus is raising the stakes on the betrayal that Judas is about to carry out. It would be one thing if Judas had wandered off unnoticed while they were traveling from town to town. But here, Jesus is almost forcing his hand as Judas looks him in the eye, takes the bread, and walks away. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do, and so he says, what you have to do, do it quickly. He gives permission to his own betrayer. If we zoom back out in the room for a moment, we see the familiar side of the disciples have no, having no idea what's going on. It says in verse 28, Now no one at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. Classic, classic disciples. Whoever I give this bread to is going to betray me. Here's the bread, Judas. Go do what you got to do. And they're like, what's he got to do? Where's he going? <laughs> Jesus, you sent him on an errand? 
It says that they thought maybe because he had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast, or, or that he should give something to the poor. Like they really think Jesus, Judas is running an errand for Jesus and not running to betray him. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Someone say night. I don't know if you've caught on by now. The themes of day and night, light and darkness in John are strong. John doesn't give us this detail to tell us what time of day they were eating dinner. He is expressing to us in the deepest and most profound way he knows how the spiritual reality of this moment. Judas receives the bread, but he gives up the bread of life. He, he, he takes the symbol of friendship, but he rejects the friend in front of him. It was night. As Judas turned his back on the light of the world and walked straight into the darkness. This is a heavy text. If you've been around resurrection for a while, you, you probably know by now that I love to get us into a story. I love to, to help us immerse ourselves in the world of scripture and, and imaginatively place ourselves in, in the room with Jesus and the disciples. I firmly believe that, that, the, disciple, or that, the, that the Bible is the true story of the world, that because it is God's story, then it must also be our story. So when we immerse ourselves in it, it's actually shaping how we understand ourselves and giving shape to how we live day to day. But I do want us to be a little bit careful with how we approach that with this passage. It, it strikes me that there was nothing outward, nothing obvious that marked out Judas as being any different from the other eleven. Nothing that could make us know that he was any less genuine, except the fact that we know how the story unfolds. Sometimes I, I think that we can imagine that Judas stuck out like a sore thumb. We read Jesus say, one of you will betray me, and we just assume that all heads immediately turn to Judas. Oh yeah, we knew something was different about that guy. We, we've been waiting for you to tell us something like this, Jesus. Something has just been off, as if the 11 are all like 90s preppy kids with their collars popped up, and Judas is like the one goth in the back of the room, just like lurking in the shadows, just waiting, waiting for his opportunity to strike. That, that's clearly not the case. It says that they're all looking around the room. Why? Because you can't tell somebody's relationship to Jesus just by looking at the outside. Nor can you tell someone's relationship to you just by looking at the outside, just by looking at their actions or even their words. Judas looked like any of the others, which can be a scary truth for us to wrestle with. It can be... Uh, the kind of thing that, that leads to some, some weighty and, and difficult questions in people's own life and faith. Questions that should not be ignored, that, that should be met with the truth of Scripture, but hard questions just the same. I would say, and this is my thought, 
Others might disagree with me. You might disagree with me. But I would say that Christians are on shaky exegetical ground, that is, shaky understanding of Scripture, when we start comparing people directly to Judas. When we start saying that you are Judas, you are like Judas. Is there a sense in which we can all relate to Judas? Yes, a very real sense. The Bible clearly teaches that sin is rebellion. Sin is a betrayal of God, a turning away from God. So yes, any time we sin, there, there is an element of betrayal. But, but I don't want to say for a moment that whenever we sin, we are betraying Jesus in exactly the same way that Judas is here. I, I've seen the story of Judas used to, to disqualify someone from following Jesus. Disqualify someone from the faith. You did that bad thing and now Jesus won't want you. You, you appeared to be following Jesus and then you turned away or you did something I didn't like or you hurt your brother or sister in Christ and so now you're, you're Judas and there's no place for you here. I want to say that is not true. I've even seen this logic used for people to like disqualify themselves. I was doing really well. I was walking faithfully. I was following Jesus. And then I, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I betrayed Jesus. And now I'm wandering around in the darkness. There's no hope for me. That is not true either. There is one Judas. And yet, if we look at his story, I think that we can glean something for how we ought to live in relation to Jesus and one another. I think if that we're willing to look at Judas's story, we can see the symptoms that betrayal produces, but we can also see the antidote that cures it. When someone in your life lifts their heel, maybe it's against you, Maybe it's against God. Maybe it's someone that you thought for sure was going to follow Jesus till the end, who's walked away from the faith. One of the symptoms that can be created in community is suspicion. The disciples shoot glances at one another. Can you imagine the millions of questions running through their minds? Well, one of us. How, how could it be one of us? Who, who could it be? Who's been lying this whole time? Why didn't I see it? Who can I trust? We can begin to become suspicious of the people around us when one person walks away from us or from God. Just like the disciples look around the room, if a friend lifts their heal against us, how do we know that others won't do the same? This is the question that enters into our minds. One friend's actions cast a shadow of doubt on all the other people around you. Some people can even become suspicious of Jesus himself. One person betrays and the response is to say, Jesus, How could you let that person into the group in the first place? How could you let a betrayer walk with you for three years? How how do we know that we can trust you, Jesus, if you're going to let Judas in the group? 
I think the other symptom that we see as betrayal plays out is that it, it amplifies anxiety. Not just about what other people might do, but also about what I might do. We can, we can become anxious that if, if that person can walk away from Jesus, what makes me feel so secure? If that person can treat me like that, may, maybe it's because there's some problem with me. Maybe I'm the one who should leave. Do you see all the, all the ways that one person's betrayal can, can give rise to division and distance in community and even between us and God? Suspicion and anxiety are, are side effects. They're symptoms of betrayal. So what is the antidote? Some people, I think, have this urge, this compulsion to say, well, well, if betrayal is wrong, then we better do the opposite of betrayal. What is that? Uh, just staying there, no matter what. Even if, you, if you're just there physically and nothing in your heart wants to be there, begrudging obedience. That's the opposite of betrayal. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you feel like following Jesus. Just, just go ahead and let that fester in your heart, but just stay close. As if, as if physical proximity is the same as spiritual relationship. They, they might not say it that way, but people live this out. They think that if they just stay close enough in their outward appearance of doing life with Jesus, then at least they didn't betray him. But I think Judas shows us that it's possible to be outwardly close and inwardly rebellious. He did, after all, take the bread. His actions were saying, we're friends. The antidote to betrayal is not begrudging obedience. I want to say it's something deeper than that. The antidote to betrayal is friendship. It is living in the light. It is living in in deep and transparent community. It is opening yourself up to God and to Christian brothers and sisters in humility and in confession. In a word, friendship captures it pretty well. Jesus offered the antidote to Judas, but Judas only took the symbol. He didn't take the substance. He he complied with Jesus' invitation on the surface, but he didn't let the light of the world shine in to his darkness and bring new life. Friend, if someone here is worried, anxious, suspicious of, of what if I become like Judas, can I tell you that, that, the, that the solution, the antidote is simple? Stay in the light. It, not, not out of begrudging obedience, but out of a an awe-filled awareness that your Savior is offering you his own self, the, the, the bread of life offering you a piece of himself, fellowship, communion with himself. The, the answer to the anxiety of what if I do something that makes Jesus reject me is not actually about Jesus rejecting you. It's about you rejecting what Jesus is offering you. The, the answer to the anxiety of what if, what if, what if, I become like Judas is simply to say, don't live in the night. 
Don't, don't live in the darkness. Surround yourself with, with people who will continually shine the light around you to, to help draw you out. Sometimes when we find ourselves in these situations, the, the enemy of God can whisper a lie into our hearts and minds that says the only safe thing for you to do right now is to pull back, to, to, to withdraw into yourself. Otherwise, they'll see you for who you are. We, we withdraw into the darkness of night, cutting ourselves off from, from friendship or, or community. When Jesus is there offering us light and life. Please do not settle for surface level compliance when Jesus is inviting you to a deep and transformative relationship. Inviting you to to commune with him. We all know what it's like to betray and to be betrayed. Well, we know that that Anytime we fall short, the the enemy is there inviting us to lift our heel and to walk out. But at the same moment, we need to see that Jesus is there too, and he was there first, inviting us to lay down our burdens and to take up his life, to, to live in the light and to walk in friendship with the God who made us. You see, this kind of friendship is possible because in the face of betrayal, Jesus shows us his faithfulness. In the garden, in the very beginning, when the first humans betrayed and rebelled against God by sinning against him, God made a promise to remain faithful. He said that he would send a seed, an offspring from the woman who would lift up his heel and crush the head of the serpent. In the wilderness, after God had freed his people from slavery and was providing for them with food from heaven, water from rocks, leading them by day and by night, the people wanted to rebel. They said it would be better for us to betray God in the desert and return to slavery in Egypt. But God remained faithful. When they got to the land, the people continued chasing out of, after idols and clamoring for kings, betraying the God who had promised to be their king. But God remained faithful, sending his prophets to call them back to himself generation after generation. And then he took it a step further. God knew that no prophet could ever fully restore the relationship that our sin had broken, so God decided to do it himself. The Father sent the Son into the midst of our betrayal and rebellion. He lived a a perfect, sinless life. And in the midst of a rebellious people, he was perfectly faithful to God on our behalf as our representative. And at the very same time as he was betrayed, he was perfectly faithful to us as God has always been. He endured death on the cross to show us the full extent of his faithfulness. And he is alive. He was raised from the grave and is alive today, faithfully meeting us in our darkness and calling us back into the light. And he will be faithful to finish what he has started. See, because Jesus was betrayed, we can trust him to be faithful. Even when we are betrayed, Jesus is faithful. When friends leave, Jesus is faithful. When when family fails us, Jesus is faithful. When you fall short, Jesus is faithful. Jesus has already experienced and endured betrayal alone in the dark of night so that you will never have to.
He is with you. He is offering himself to you. And he is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we humbly come before you, recognizing that all we, we need is your faithfulness to us, that, that we can trust that you will be faithful to us every day and in all seasons, no matter what comes, because you were faithful enough to endure the cross. Lord, we, we see you even in moments of our own rebellion, still there offering us your friendship, offering us an opportunity to, to repent and believe, to follow you with our whole life. We, we confess that we need your help doing that. So we pray, Jesus, help us. Help us to, to live in the light, to walk in the light and to live out of the security of who you are, and that you have given us friendship with yourself, so that we never have to be anxious of being betrayed. We love you, Lord. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we get to respond to God's word together now, and and we're going to do that in a couple of ways. If you are here and you are not yet a Christian, I would invite you to walk into the light. Not, not, to, not to hear the words of Jesus, hear the offer of Jesus, and to turn around and walk back into the darkness of night, but to hear the words of Jesus, to believe that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he would do, that he died in our place for our sin, and that he rose from the grave, and that Because of that, you can have friendship and fellowship with him. You're invited to step into the light, to trust him, to become a Christian today. If you're here and and that's you, we would love to talk to you. When I say we, I mean the person next to you would love to talk to you. I also would love to. If you wanted to to come forward to where I'm sitting, that would be be wonderful to talk and, and pray together. Begin that journey of following Jesus together. For those of us who are following Jesus, who are Christians, you're invited to this very meal that Judas was invited to. You're invited to to come to the table and receive those elements that Judas offered, even his betrayer. The bread, the cracker, which represents his body broken on the cross for us. And that juice, which is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. And as you receive those elements, I would just invite you to to take a a moment before you take them in to to just be introspective for a moment about, about those areas in your life which are not covered in light all of the time. But those areas maybe of of anxiousness those areas maybe even of suspicion and to to ask that Jesus would would shine his light into those parts of your life. To to remember that because of Jesus' work, not your work, you can have friendship with God. And to receive those elements in a spirit of humility and of thanksgiving for who he is and what he has done for us. And after you've had a minute or two 
uh, to do those things. Parents, I'd invite you to go get your kids uh, from class to bring them in so that we can uh, end our time worshiping God together through song. Let's respond together in these ways now, church. Well, congrats, you made it through the whole sermon. We just want to say thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. Again, this is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. If you want to connect with us, you can do that by going to our website at resurrectionchurch.com. There you will find all the ways to worship with us, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, connect with us through a group or event, find a place to serve, and give financially. We're so thankful for each and every one of you, and our hope is that you will continue to live life with Jesus this week.